Welcome to the Kitchen Sink meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Please note, we will be holding this meeting via Zoom for the foreseeable future. If you'd like to attend the meeting live, go to oalaig.org for login information. And now, our speaker. Um, I am Dulce Amicals Reader and a Bulimic. Um, it's so weird not to hear anyone say, hi, you know, Dulce or anything. Um, Zoom is awesome, obviously. <laughs> Um, but at the same time, it's it's bizarre to not be in the room. Um, quickly, I'll qualify and say that um, I came into the program in 1987, 88-ish in Illinois, um, and I didn't actually – well, hold on a second. Hey, babe, meeting's on. Can't come through here. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I, I came to OA in 87, 88. I didn't start working it until – like in earnest, though, until 90. And then I got absent May 1st of uh, 1991. So um, I'm celebrating a little over 29 years of absence, which is it is really odd to say numbers that high. It just I right now I turned 50 this year, so everything just makes me feel so old, <laughs> including my mere 19 year old. And now the rest of my family is going to come through the office, which I swear to God I told them ahead of time you cannot come through. But anyway, all right, so they're fine. Um, so I've been in the program for a really long time. I, like I said, I, I am a bulimic and a compulsive overeater. So this story might be a little different. I encourage everyone to listen for similar similarities as opposed to differences. Um, so what started the whole thing off was in uh, junior high. I actually wanted to be anorexic. I serious eye roll at that. Serious eye roll at that. Um, I could not actually be anorexic. I love food too much, but I did find bulimia. And it felt like a dirty secret because it, it's gross. I mean, to be honest, it is. It's really gross. But it kind of made me feel like, oh, I can have what I want without, you know, without having to pay for it. Um, and it really kicked into gear during my high school career. Um, I started dieting my freshman year, and I started restricting, and it was pretty much all I thought about. I thought about what I was eating, when's my next meal, what are you eating, how come you can eat that, how come I can't eat that. I'm so freaking hungry. Um, and then it led, I remember my first binge was so bizarre. I, I ate and it was at a function at a banquet at high, in high school. And I ate to the point where I was totally full and I was actually almost in pain. And I still had the driving need to continue to eat. And I did. And then it was more painful. And I, I, I never was able to like get this thing satiated on the inside, which that was kind of scary, but that's what that's what it was like a lot. That this compulsive drive to eat, or and then I would binge my brains out. And sometimes the binge would last one night. Sometimes the binge would last four days. And then if you add bulimia into that, oye, I mean, by the time it got really bad, um, a few years into it, I couldn't even eat a normal meal. I would start to eat a meal, and it wouldn't even be anything interesting. And it would end up being a full-on binge, and then I would throw up. And, you know, my senior year in high school, I don't think I went to a full full week of school. Um, but because I'm me, I still achieved. I was still second in my class. And, you know, I'm an overachiever because I believe I have to earn my worth on a daily basis. I'm not whole already or anything, right? So I've got to, like, achieve, achieve, achieve. Um, but then when I went away, so I left Illinois. And, I, and while I was in Illinois, I went to OA, a small town. I grew up in a small town of 7,000 people. So you can imagine what the meeting was like. It was everybody that was at least 45 and up, and the most all of them were compulsive readers. So I come in and I'm this cute thin thing, 
And they're like, why are you here? And then I open up my mouth to share like what I do with food and you know, their jaws drop on the floor and everyone takes a couple steps back like, holy shit. (laughs) And I could see myself in the big book. I mean, obviously, you know, doing stuff that you don't want to do consistently without any ability to stop it is really demoralizing. And that's what I had been like that for years, right? What was really sad is that there was only one anorexic um, in that meeting and she wasn't healthy either. And if you guys ever want to see one of the most bedded meetings in your entire life, just go to an anorexic bulimic meeting where there's hardly any recovery. Everybody's trying to outdo each other. Everyone's trying to starve more than the next person or throw up more times per day than the next person. It, it's not a pretty, not a pretty place. <laughs> so, but she wasn't so bad, but you know, neither one of us had any recovery. So the, the ladies that were in that group were, they wanted to help, but what could they do? You know, but then I came to Los Angeles where there are plenty of really thin, sick individuals. (laughs) So I found my people, right? Um, There was a Thursday night meeting uh, in West Hollywood. I think they called it the dry dock at the time, and it was an anorexic bulimic meeting. And that meeting, I have to tell you, saved my life, totally saved my life. Um, It is so critical to hear your bullshit come out of someone else's mouth. You know what I mean? But uh, so what it was like was just that basically – I just thought about the size of my ass all the time. And of course I came here to be an actress because that's not trade or anything. Right. And it meant jobs to me if I could lose weight or not. So it, the stakes were really high. And, you know, to be honest, I have to tell you, I had to, I had to give up acting. Not that everyone, not that anyone else did, but I had to give up that pursuing that particular career in order to just get abstinent um, because it was just, it fed into my disease too much. Right. Anyway, so that's what it was like. I came out to Los Angeles. And my whole world revolved around the size of my ass, what I looked like, what I was eating, what I wasn't eating, how to get rid of it, how come I can't be thinner. I'd be thin. I would get thin, like I'd get a stomach flu, woo, stomach flu, for like, I'd be thin for like five seconds, um, at least the way that I would like to be. And then it would come right back on. And when the eating started, it didn't matter where I was. It didn't matter if I was at work or if I was in class or, I mean, once the eating happened and the train left that station, I could not stop eating until it was like, you know, people say you dance with a gorilla, you don't stop until the gorilla is done, you know, that, and it was, it was not a, it was not a fun existence. And I felt very, very broken. I, I should also say that my mom is a clinical psychologist. So I grew up in the world of therapy, being in therapy, out of therapy, I mean, just lots of therapy. I knew what my, some of my character defects were, and I could make absolutely no use of that whatsoever. So by the time I got to OA, I just felt like I was, sincerely messed up and I didn't understand I'd even been to OA in Illinois and it didn't work I used to pray my guts out like those first couple years like please God please God please help me to not eat help me to not eat and then for the first few days I'd be fine and come that fourth or fifth day I could just feel the need the driving need to binge come and I would please God please 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 and then I would eat anyway and I thought holy shit maybe I'm more messed up than the people in the rooms like how come this is not working for me? And when I was in OA here, I, when I got into OA here, I had 60 days of abstinence, but it was three meals a day, nothing in between, and I didn't lose any weight on that. And because with my judgment, which later I'll tell you, there's this Bob D um, talk from AA called um, "It's on Surrender," and he basically says our self-will is our judgment. And I have to be honest, that totally fits with me. And in my judgment, my abstinence wasn't good enough. 
I wanted to be on gray sheet because gray sheet was a thing at the time. And it, it was hardcore. And I'm, <laughs> I always want to be hardcore. Like there was a, there was a military ad when I was growing up that we do more before 6 a.m. than most people do all day. Hoorah, right? That's what I, I always want to be that. I wanted my whole life to be like the training montage from the movie, you know, with the music in the background and you're working out really hard and you're, you're sweating and you go from like in four minutes or 30, 45 seconds, whatever it is, from like not being so great to being great, you know. That's all the lot. You can hear a lot of my mythology, a lot of my character defects, a lot of my judgment. So I had this 60 day abstinence, but it wasn't great and I hadn't lost any weight. So in my wonderful opinion, thought I should go on gray sheet. I lost my abstinence in seven days or less. I didn't get it back for seven months. And during that seven months, it was horrible. I went, I went to five meetings a week. I went to, I went through two or three sponsors. Um, and I went to this one relapse and recovery meeting in Westwood, and they said that the people around the Ivy League schools had the most abysmal recovery rate because they're too much in their heads or whatever. And I left that meeting thinking that I maybe never did abstinence because, you know, I took my straight A mentality and I put it on the program and shocker, it didn't work, <laughs> you know, but I had never done anything in my life really because I don't have any ability to do anything and not do well because I don't have the self, I didn't have the self-esteem for that, right? So here it was a year or two plus into the program and people, I mean, I, I know I make this joke all the time, but people I didn't even think were particularly intelligent were getting abstinent and zero was happening for me, like nothing. And I walked out of that meeting and I thought I might never get abstinent. I, I, I didn't know how to feel or think about myself. And at the same time, I started hearing other things too. Like I don't think much of myself, but it's all I think about, or I'm the piece of shit that the world revolves around. And I also heard Lucy say, I was going to the meetings uh, on Robertson in the log cabin um, over there at the time. And I remember hearing someone say, um, I don't have a problem with food. I think that if I fix my food, I'll fix my weight. And that's my problem. And I was like, oh, I don't want to hear that, you know, because that's true. The thing that really broke the camel's back, the way that I hit a bottom. Um, and, you know, to be honest, as a bulimic, and I'm grandiose in drama, obviously, you can tell. I really figured my bottom would be some sort of like erupted esophagus and I would be like, you know, you know, sent to the hospital, like in the ambulance bleeding or some shit like that. Right. And my bottom was completely the opposite of that. I had, I got a play as from UCLA at the time. I got a play right after the stomach flu. Um, God love the stomach flu when you're bulimic. <laughs> I mean, not really. I'm making a joke, obviously, but, um, and my weight was down. And then by the time rehearsals started, which was just a few weeks, but my weight would very much fluctuate. So my weight was not what it was when I got the part. And there are lines in the play about my body, about what I look like. And I just decided in OA that I was going to diet. And I knew it wasn't abstinent. And I didn't care. I thought, you know what? I sat in the back of the meetings and I glared at everybody and I took diuretics and I dieted. And I got myself down to the weight that I wanted. And when dress rehearsal came around, there there were reviews about the play were great. I looked the way that I wanted. I had everything in my life set up the way that I thought would make me happy. And I still had the driving need to binge my brains out and blot out my consciousness. And it devastated me. I was clueless. I could see getting everything I ever dreamed of and still having this whole like raging through the center of my being. And that's when I hit a bottom. I mean, looking back now, I can tell you it's when I surrendered my own judgment about life. It's looking back now, I can tell you it's 
it's when I decided and really got that I had zero idea what was actually going to make me happy in life. Um, and then I, right, that all happened right around the same time that I went to that relapse and recovery meeting. And I thought maybe I'd never get abstinent. And I just thought, I'm going to work the steps anyway. And at the time, you couldn't work the steps if you weren't abstinent, which makes sense. I mean, if you're mainlining sugar, you can't really work the steps. But sometimes as an anorexic or bulimic, i got to be honest, I, I couldn't put the food down until I had the spiritual awakening that was res- the result of working the steps. So I got another sponsor, that one that said that thing in the log cabin where, you know, I don't, I don't really have a problem with food. I think if I fix my food away. And by the way, like, alcohol is not the problem of alcoholism, you know. What's my time? You actually have eight more minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. So I'll just jump to working the steps really briefly, and then I'll spend the last two minutes telling you what it's like. So um, I was saying that, like, alcohol isn't the problem of alcoholism. You know, uh, it's the problem isn't alcohol. The problem is living, right? And for as a compulsive overeater, food is not the problem. Living is the problem. For me, I didn't know how to live. I thought I did. And since I was such an achiever, I, you know, I was pretty good at achieving and racking up stuff. And so it was very difficult to prove to me that I didn't know how to live or that I didn't know what would make me happy. I know what will make, I know I'm actually pretty accurate about what I find pleasurable, but I don't have any idea what leads to peace and comfort and ease within myself and with all of you. I, you know, that's a Chuck C uh, thing. He said, I, 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 he said, I finally found in this program what I was looking for in the bottle, which was peace and ease and comfort within myself so that I can live in peace and ease and comfort with all of you. I did not know how to find that at all. Um, every day that I wake up now, I have all the spiritual practice I have to do, and I sponsor like 10 women, and I spend all this time on the phone, and I have a sponsor and all this stuff, because every day that I wake up, my head's still convinced that I know what's going to make me happy, and it's not being detachedly curious. I was joking with someone earlier today. Detachedly curious, like that's my spiritual goal for a lot of it's a lot of what I seek, you know, as far as spiritual development, living along along spiritual principles, right? The, living detachedly curiously is not sexy. It doesn't sell cars. Like it's not something that I would go, oh wow, that sounds really cool. Like how it doesn't sell gym memberships or anything like that. Like trying to sell someone like me this idea of being detachedly curious about life is just kind of funny. But every morning that I get up. I have to, I take a few minutes and I listen to, um, uh, you know, some AA tapes. I love Bob Darrow, Sandy Beach, Joe Hawk, Dave Fredrickson. I'm, uh, there are just a ton of people, or Thich Nhat Hanh, like spiritual stuff. And then I meditate for 10 minutes, and I have a practice where I do some breathing gases, and I ask the three questions. There's 12 prayers and meditations that Dave Fredrickson took out of the big book. And uh, the first one is... Um, Ask God to give me a vision of what it looks like to be patient, kind, tolerant, and loving to my family members today. So after I do the first breathing gatsa, I drop that question into the silence, and I listen for an answer from my higher power. Um, it's very important. Probably the most important thing that has come out of working the 12 steps is that I need a higher power that is not me, that is not my mind, that is beyond my thoughts and beyond my feelings. I love my thoughts. I love my feelings. There are members on the bus. They're adorable. I'm not going to bury them. I'm not going to hide them in the backyard. I don't want to stuff them. But they can't get anywhere near the steering wheel of my life or I'm screwed. It's like letting a five-year-old drive. I mean, 
you know, you don't want to kick the five-year-old off the bus, but at the same time, you don't let him drive. Like, you do not let, I do, I cannot let my peanut, my ego drive the bus. I, I just can't. So I have to do all of this stuff to disengage myself from my own judgment about life. Working these 12 steps has allowed me to get to a place where I could actually see myself, um, you know, that fifth step promise where it says I can see myself right-sized. I I thought I knew myself, and I did. I did know myself, but, man, those questions in the OA 12 and 12. Now, mind you, I do the fear inventory and the resentment inventory from the AA Big Book. I had to do a fear inventory right before I did this meeting because I was so nervous about doing this meeting. Yeah, upload me to a podcast, and I have to sign a waiver and all this shit. I'm like, I'm used to just, like, coming to a meeting where I know everybody and we're all in the same room. Anyway, so. I do the fear inventory. I do the resentment inventories out of the big book. But the way I worked the steps was I did those 144 questions out of the OA 12 and 12. And I got to tell you, I know it's not big book thumping, but those questions save my ass. Those questions are so, so good. And listening, there's so many questions I said no to that as a sponsor, I hear other people say yes to. So hearing the other people's inventories from those questions has deepened my understanding of how powerless I am over my own character defects and how no one chooses the way they behave. Because the things I said no to, some of the people say yes to. But some of the stuff I say yes to, some of the people that I work with, they say no to. So, but those questions, I remember when I read all that stuff to Lucy and I, I sat down and, and ever since, because I've done those steps a number of times and I work them daily or, you know, somewhat daily as, as far as the inventories go. Um, but I remember it was the first time I actually saw myself right-sized. I could see my assets and liabilities, and I began to feel how I fit in this world. And I'm not, I'm no longer a victim. But I could also see how far out of touch I was living. I was trying to make a made-up la-la land be the real world. I was not living life on life's terms. I was trying to wrest satisfaction out of life by managing it super, super well. <laughs> I have this uh, metaphor I use where, um, you know, we're going along in a river and some people are just in their inner tube and they're just kind of going with the flow. But me, I'm on the riverbanks. I've got a shovel and I am civil engineering and I am trying to get that river to like go where I want it to go. And the problem is I can actually move that river like a good six to 12 inches. I'm facile. Like I'm on it. I can do that. So I'm toiling. I've got blisters. I'm, and then I start getting pissed because I can see these people flowing by in their inner tubes and they seem to be having a fine time. And how come I'm over here? As soon as I stop this shoveling, the river goes right back to where it was before and I have to hop in my inner tube. By the time I get to the rapids on the river, I'm exhausted. I'm mad. I'm bitter. <laughs> I'm fearful, and I have no ability, because I'm not even in the present moment, to deal with the rapids. Whereas if I work this program, and I do these steps, and I work with others, and I do the stuff that's outlined in the big book, I can get in the middle of that inner tube, go with the flow. When the rapids come, I can just kind of take them as they come. But it means I have to give up all of my fault senses of security. I give up getting to think I know where anything is going. I mean, Trust is one of the hugest principles that these steps have forced me to embrace. I, I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Almost all of my character defects are about trying to ensure a certain outcome. And it is uncomfortable to live according to spiritual principles. Like in the agnostics, when it says on one side of the street is dying an alcoholic death and on the other side of the street is living a life according to spiritual principles, spiritual principles is not easy for me. 
that's not a, that's not an easy choice. You know, people joke. Some of the AA speakers I hear joke, and they say, "Well, how bad is the alcoholic death? Like, what are we talking about here?" <laughs> because while while I was trying to consider living a life based on spiritual principles, it's I it's not like I said, it's not sexy. It's not egotistically gratifying. It I have no idea where things are going, but I know that it, once I start living according to those concepts and precepts, life gets better. When I start trying to get what I want out of life and my ego is in charge, life gets worse. So over the course of this last um, 30 almost years in program, every time I come across a new thing in life. That's your time. No, that's I, your time. Mm-hmm. I'm done? Yes. Okay. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeater Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you have a question, please click the raise your hand icon and Nancy, thanks, will uh, will call on you. You can then unmute and ask your question. All right, first up we have Carol. Okay, hi, um, thank you so much for your share. Um, when your time ran out, you were, you were just about to tell us, uh, lay some wisdom about what you tell newcomers, um, which is always a struggle for me. And I forget exactly what you were talking about, but hopefully you remember something about it, you know, when a newcomer says or, or feels a certain way. Um, you, ah. you set this straight. <laughs> Do you remember exactly, like, what the topic was? Like, I don't, I don't remember what I was going to say. I don't. I don't remember what I was going to say when I got cut off, um, or not when I got cut off, but when my 20 minutes yeah. were over. But um, shoot, uh, I don't know. Maybe something from Weignosis. If someone else remembers and can trigger, tell me what I was saying at the end. I don't know. Sorry, Carol. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know, right? <laughs> All right. All right. Next up, we have Roberta. Hi, thanks so much, Dolce. I know that at the end you were going to summarize with what life is like now. So I don't know if you could just spend a few minutes telling us that. Yeah, I mean, life life now is that, you know, that part of the big book where it says that um, uh, we are placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We no longer need to swear off. Um, means we I don't white knuckle anything anymore. And the only reason why I have that is because I'm in a fit spiritual. Oh, I think I remember. I know what I was going to say. Just that every time something, and here I got it, Carol, so I'm not a complete idiot. Um, every time in the last 30 years something new happens in my life, my character defects think that this God thing is not going to work. Um, so whether it's being in architecture school or um, having babies and getting them to sleep through the night or what. You can imagine all the different life, and any time I come across anything trying or new in my life, my head and my ego kicks right back in and says, yeah, that God and that praying stuff, that's adorable. Like, yeah, I guess you could try that. But I think people have probably written books on this subject, Dulcie, right? So I almost, I mean, I, I don't do it on purpose, but I inadvertently take my character defects out for a spin and end up in a lot of pain. And so what ends up happening is that that then folds me back into, oh, right, like, I need to turn my life and my will over to my higher power. I don't get to know. I just get to look out the window and say, this day is not mine. I accept it exactly how it is. I'm 100% all in. God, where would you have me be? That is such a different perspective. And sometimes, unfortunately, I get schooled by life. Um, 
And thankfully, I don't have to lose my abstinence in order to do it, although I've come close a couple of times. Um, but that that's what life has been like. It's a, a series of, like, remembering that even though it feels like I'm in kindergarten with my Crayolas, that just dropping questions into the silence and asking for direction and guidance about what to do next, how is it possible that that's a workable way to do life? Like, my ego thinks that's just a little bit capricious and that maybe I'm not thinking things through. <laughs> Um, but that's, that's what I was going to say that like the last 30 years of my life has been a series of realizing that these 12 steps is really all that I can do. And if I do these things, I will face life at page 63. If I stay close to my higher power, do my higher powers work well, I will face life successfully and I can lose my fear of today, of yesterday and hereafter. And that is true. All right, Bailey. Hey, Dulce, thank you so much for your share. Um, you kind of just touched on it, but I was going to ask um, just if you could share about six and seven, um, you know, what it, the separating or letting go of the idea of, you know, I guess the ego wanting to think that our uh, defects are just going to be washed away by our higher power. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, six and seven are my favorite steps because, like I said, I grew up with a, a mom who's a clinical psych- psychologist, right? So um, I had spent years and years before I got into recovery of trying to work on my problems. Um, it's very humbling when they don't, when nothing changes, right? So six and seven for me, um, it's most of the time because, you know, the steps are set up so nicely. I'm in pain, so I do an inventory. Then I read it to somebody. So usually by the time I get to step six, I'm already primed to be willing to let go of the character defects that put me in pain to begin with, right? However, there are some character defects that I like or some character defects that I fear are the truth. So I've never been able to become entirely willing to let go of character defects until I unearthed what was the lie behind them. For instance, um, not all of us, of course, but I have low self-esteem or self-loathing. And that seems like an easy one. Like, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you be entirely willing to have someone remove low self-esteem and self and self-loathing until I discover that, in fact, if I can point out my my faults before any of you and if I hate on myself enough, maybe I can make them better. It's a backhanded sense of control. If I let go of my low self-esteem and self-loathing, I'm left with just understanding that I'm a flawed human being and that I can do nothing about that, nor should I do anything about that. And that that's just OK. That's so wildly uncomfortable for me. I would. I would prefer not to be human. I would prefer to have zero faults and to be unaffected emotionally by anybody or to be above it all or whatever. That's what my ego wants. So unearthing the lies behind the character defects, they're either threatening me with something or they're promising me something. And when once I unearth that lie in step six, I ask myself, is it, does it work? You know, does it work? Does it actually protect me from the things it's threatening me from? Or does it actually give me the things that it's saying it'll give me? And if not, then it's much easier for me to become entirely willing to have them be removed. And then I can just drop the stuff into the silence and realize it's not up to me when these things get removed. I can ask my higher power in step seven to give me a vision of what it looks like without the character defect. That's the only other action I can do. Um, and the cool thing about that, well, I have to say the humbling thing about that is I have like two or three or four character defects, which I would say are the, like the hit parade or that run the show. And it's so humbling because they're just, on any given day, two or three of them are always there. 
and it's so uncreative. Like when I do inventory, it's like the same character defects like all the time. But I will tell you the cool thing about knowing I can't remove them and that God will on his timetable whenever is that it increases my depth and compassion for others and their character defects. If I could actually work on my character defects and make them go away, I would become incredibly judgmental of everybody else and their character defects because they just need to get on it and work on it like I did. And how come they still have theirs? <laughs> so anyway, six and seven was was a, a life changer for me. So thanks for asking about it. Next is Michael B. Wow, Dulcie. Thank you for your share. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes. Hello. Yeah. Okay. Um, God, so many questions. Um, um, what's the one question? How? Oh, I can't hear you now. You ask God in a prayer um, um, how you uh, get patient, tolerant, kind, loving with your family. Can you share the results of that prayer, the action that you've taken, and how it actually works in regards to your family? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, it's kind of funny, but, you know, I, I right now, and it doesn't have to just be your family. It could be like I extend that to have be my employees sometimes, too, because I have a small business, and so I have employees here and stuff like that. But oftentimes uh, when I ask about my husband, um, my husband, you know, it's very easy if I keep this is please no judging. <laughs> but and yes, it actually comes back from my higher power to like touch him and love on him like he loves that. And, and it's a very easy thing. And, and if I just touch him and go out of my way to touch him and love on him and, you know, whatever, that's an easy way for me to be loving towards my husband and also seeing silly things, but like, you know, keeping the, like he can't stand it when the kitchen gets all cluttered. I could, I could care less. Right. Um, but if I, so sometimes this is not like I have a checklist, but sometimes my higher power, I know it sounds mundane and it is mundane, but Finding God in the dull, mundane parts of my life has been like the lifebread of my recovery, right? So I'll get a vision from my higher power to like, oh, you know, I've been ignoring the pots and pans, like go clean those up or stuff like that. So with, with Howard, it's usually stuff like that. For my kids, it's usually things about listening, um, active listening, which I sucked at um, before I got into recovery. And I don't know that I'm really that much better at it now because I just think about me all the time. And it's all, ooh this for me, that for me, got to get on this, how come, maybe this might not happen, how come this thing is happening, like, it's all about me all the time, so really actively listening to my children and taking them in, I get that one a lot uh, for the kids, um, and with the employees and stuff, sometimes it comes back, like, to, you know, to not be so stressy <laughs> in the office, just stuff like that, like, you know, it's not, it's, it's never a burning bush, you know what I mean? It's not anything dramatic, but um hope that answers that question. Thank you. Next up, we have Marie. Hi, can I be heard? Yes. Hi, um, thanks so much for your share and um, the amazing questions as well. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, that you had a lot of sponsors and I was wondering, uh, in the event that um, one of your sponsee um, has a, is experiencing cravings, um, what do you suggest in terms of tools? Um, and you, um, I'm kind of super cognizant that there, in terms of addiction, there can be physical triggers as like in terms of eating, and then 
so like cravings that are due to physical uh, eating, what you ate the week before, and then the emotional triggers. So I wonder if you could speak to that. I can't. You know, it's really weird because uh, five more minutes. Okay. Um, I'll try to keep this one brief. This one's a complicated one, though, because there are anorexics, bulimics, and compulsive readers, and some people are all three, right? Some people are triple winners. <laughs> um, but cravings, it's an interesting thing you bring up. Cravings are something that if something's been out of your system, like in, in the world of alcoholism, they call it the mental obsession, right? Or that if you have that first drink, it triggers the need for more. Um, basically, the cravings start happening for me. So I'll just speak for me as a bulimic. The cravings start happening for me when um, – and my craving – is me wanting to lose weight. That's 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 the corollary in my world. Like I work with people who will start craving sugar, but my first step is like, oh, oh my God, my thighs are way out of control. That's unacceptable. We need to get on that. Like right the f now. Like uh uh-uh, uh uh uh. You know, or or oh my God, how come I'm so fat? You know, it's like and you know, it's so embarrassing to say out loud. But like that's how it starts for me. And if I if I then jump on that train, right? then I'm off and running, and you can set your watch by the time I'm going to be face down binging, right? So we all have different sorts of cravings, like you said, food behaviors, actual foods, whatever. And I, the answer is really frustrating, but it's not – oftentimes it's not a local thing. It's, it's kind of like, you know, there's some psychotropic meds where you take them and it takes a while to build up in your system. If I have not been spiritually fit, it takes me a while. My first question is, how is it, what character defect is running the show in your life? Where is it that you are trying to do life all on your own? How are you doing life based on self-reliance? Because that's the only thing that causes the cravings to happen where you want to check out because your consciousness is so awful that you need a break because you can't breathe, right? And these are the little things that provide us the break, whether they're the sugar or the idea that maybe I'm going to be thinner or whatever it is. We're trying to escape the pain of my own existence, right? And the only reason why my existence would be that painful is if I'm doing life based on self-reliance. So it's a crappy answer, but the answer is where are the character defects running the show? Where am I fearful, resentful, dishonest, self-centered? Start doing some inventory, doing some writing, all of that, working the program. Like it works if you work it. I know it's trite. I know it's so trite. But you know what's even more frustrating is that that's actually true in my life. If I work it, it works. Oh, I wish it were more complicated than that. Um, but that's usually what I respond to people when they start to have cravings. All right, next up we have Vincent. Hey, Dulcis. Thank you so much for your share. It feels very deep and, and introspective and, and real. My, my question to you is, can you describe your relationship with your higher power and has it actually evolved over time? Uh, great question. How much time do I have left? Three minutes. Okay, great. Um, uh, so my relationship, my higher power, you know, um, I'm very kind of mental cerebral. And so I went through one phase of my life where I wanted to get a sangha or a group of people to meditate and pray with. And I only had a very larval, I would say, notion of a higher power, meaning it just starts with it. It's not me. It's something that's beyond me that is not me. But I didn't have it any more uh, described than that. And 
I wanted to have a group of people that maybe I could enlarge my spiritual life with. So I got these spiritual books and I started reading about all the different. I got so far away from my higher power by going through making a survey of all the different because I started getting intellectual again. And then somehow I went back and saw in the literature that said that we have to let go of the chicken or the egg or whatever and just know that we can just start with the notion that it's not us, which was very relieving to me. So my understanding of a higher power is that I don't understand what it is, but I can tell you how what it's like. Um, and what it's like is that, uh, well, first of all, I have to be, there has to be that surrender, right? I have to understand that there's something beyond my thoughts and my feelings. And if I'm really scared about something, we're super pissed off. Sometimes I have to call someone else so I can de-escalate myself so that I can even get enough blue sky to hear a higher power. Um, so, but let's assume I, I've got enough blue sky and I'm de-escalated, then what I do is I just drop these questions into the silence and then I listen. There's this uh, phrase of this, I can't remember if it was Dave Fredrickson or Marquis, calling it, talking about becoming a holy listener. Um, I never used to ask. I always used to tell my higher power what I wanted and pray, God, please, 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 please. But I never listened. I never asked for direction and guidance. So even if it's just around small things, like what should I wear or what should I eat? How much should I eat? At what time should I eat? Like, Stupid, simple, mundane questions about what to do next. That's when I drop questions. And if I'm agitated or doubtful, I pause and I stop and I ask for direction and guidance. So I drop a question in the silence and how I experience it is I get this intuitive response. And then the next question people ask is, well, how do you know it's not your head? How do you know it's your higher power? And I can say that from my experience, if it sounds like common sense, it's not me. (laughs) If it sounds kind of adult, not me <laughs> so uh if it sounds you know grounded and common sensey it's absolutely probably my higher power if it sounds like yeah 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 just do that no don't, don't even think about it anymore just do that probably not my higher power you know um but that's what the experience is like and it doesn't take away my fear entirely it doesn't take away the resentment entirely but i all of a sudden have space around my emotional reactions to things and that is the presence of a higher power in my life so that's what the experience is like. It's it's kind of um, just thank God. I mean, Mark Houston said we have to be out of our mind in order to connect with a power greater than ourselves. So it's very difficult for me to put words to it, but that's what the experience is like. And has it evolved? Not really, because uh, every time I try to make it more articulate, I get farther away from it, if that makes any sense.